The I Love You So Much podcast is proudly sponsored by Hilton. Discover Austin and choose from one of our many brands, including Hilton, Embassy Suites by Hilton, Doubletree by Hilton, Hampton Inn & Suites, and Home to Suites by Hilton. See more, save more. Stay at Hilton. Unlock local experiences at travel.hilton.com. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley. I'm Omar Gayaga. And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. By now, thousands of you have seen Crazy Rich Asians, and we know this because Austin was one of the hit rom-com's strongest premiering cities. Christine Wong of Color Arc Productions, along with Yola Liu and Santino Fernandez of local comedy groups Y'all, We Asian, and Hot Pot Comedy, chat with Addie Broyles and Statesman music writer Deborah Sengupta Stith about how the movie has rallied Austin's Asian community. Joe Gross interviews Onion AV writer Scott Von Dobiak about his fiction debut, Charles Gate Confidential, a noir set in three time periods in Boston. Matthew McConaughey's margarita doesn't look like your margarita, but that's all right by him. In this week's Web Report, Eric Webb joins us to explain the actor's unusual method for making Austinite's favorite drink. We'll end, as always, with our recommendations in a toast. But first, let's hear from Addie and Deborah, who caught up with local playwright Christine Wong and comedians Yola Liu and Santino Fernandez to hear about the local reaction to Crazy Rich Asians, as well as their own sold-out comedy shows. So we are going to talk a little bit about Crazy Rich Asians, which um, in case you guys have been under a rock is huge right now. Uh, As of this recording, it has grossed over $164 million, making it the 10th biggest domestic grocer in the country. And it's the highest grossing romantic comedy in nine years. So, Christine, you were really involved with a lot of the opening festivities of the, around the movie in Austin. Can you talk a little bit about what you did? So, I'm uh, one of the board members of the Austin Asian American Film Festival, and we decided to do a huge party, uh, what we called an activation event, before the opening of Crazy Rich Asians. So, we had that the first weekend of October, of August. And um, Yola and Santino were there. Um, so we invited down folks from the movie. We got two um, actors, Ronnie Chang and Chris Pang. We also got two of the screenwriters, Adele Lim and uh, Peter Chiarello, uh, Chiarelli. Sorry. So we did uh, a VIP event, and we also did a free night market for the community. We got everyone really excited. I'd like to think that we helped create the groundswell because when it opened, um, uh, a week later or a week or two later, Austin was one of the top 10 cities where Crazy Rich Asians um, really blew up. So I, I'd like to think that it was uh, a lot of our grassroots effort here in Austin. That's fantastic. You bought out a couple rows of a theater for the movie, right? Yeah. So when it first um, uh, w- went live, I guess is what you call it. I don't know. Um, so I just bought the back two rows and I asked friends if they wanted to fill in. Um, some of them wanted to pay for tickets. Some if they couldn't, then I you know, covered it. It was fine. But most people were like, hey, here you go. Um, let's go together. Um, and then from that, more seats started to fill out. And then before you know it, that theater sold out. So it was one of the shows for opening weekend and that kind of dominoes effect into other theaters where folks are getting that FOMO kind of, you know, feeling. Mm-hmm. And then Austin 
sold the stuff out. Well, I think there's the tickets are still selling pretty pretty well. I, what were your impressions of the movie when you saw it? The first time I saw it, I saw it for an advanced screening because uh, Warner Brothers tried to uh, do a little uh, screening for us at the film festival to get us excited. Saw it in June. I read the book. I think I was busy comparing some of it to the book. So I had some of that going on. But I also was able to be present in the moment and get swept up by just, I don't know, this, you can't even put it into words. It's just, you didn't know you needed it until you saw it. You didn't know how to put it into some kind of articulation of what it feels like to see people who look like you, look like your sister, look like your aunt, look like your mom, look like your uncles, your cousins, all on screen for the whole time being various different crazy characters. Um, It was emotional. And I didn't expect to get so emotional at weird different points. Uh, And the second time I saw it, I was able to appreciate the storytelling without having to compare it to the book or think about how to market this or things. I could just enjoy it. Can you talk about seeing it in the theater on that opening night? Uh, what what was the crowd like? What was because I was actually at the Alamo um, that opening night, and you guys had some kind of a like a step and repeat something set, set up where people were taking pictures in front of this big backdrop of the movie. There was a lot of excitement in the theater. So, well, for opening night, um, actually we sold out. So I was there to greet my friends, but I kind of gave my opening night ticket away just so other folks could see it I went to see it this Saturday of what it was still opening weekend and it was still really exciting I think there was a pre-reel that the film festival put together with Alamo that showed nationwide and it showed the history of Asian Americans in cinema and the whitewashing the yellow facing um, uh, that that kind of history so to lead up to then have crazy rich Asians I think everyone got um, emotional at different points and the cool thing was it was a theater of not all Asians which is what Austin is to begin with they had a lot of Asians but they had a lot of folks from um, so many different backgrounds and also age groups so it was a it was a show that I brought my my little daughter to and I also saw grandparents and I saw people who um, brought their families or brought dates it was it was really cool what did you guys think about the movie um, I was there on the opening night. I did not give up my ticket. Yeah. <laughs> no, so talk about that. Uh, it was, I mean, the energy was just so, ex- I don't know, I guess I can't even necessarily put it into words like how it felt just like to have so many people that were there for this like, ca- like for this cause and that they were so excited about um the movie and like like Christine said, like I was, I was actually kind of expecting the whole entire theater to be all Asians. But it was very, very mixed. It was like people, it was like white people and Asians mostly. (laughs) It was like, but everybody, but you know, everybody was there to support the movie. And it was just like, people were clapping at uh, like different parts. And then like, I, I don't know, I, I cried and I, you know, I looked over at other people and I could tell they were crying too. And it was just like, it was nice to all feel like you were experiencing this like monumental event together. Oh, so my experience has a bit, a little bit of, uh, I'd say, nuance to it. Cause, like, before the movie came out, I vi- I went home to the Philippines, uh, cause I hadn't been home for two years, mm-hmm. so I was there for two weeks, and then I was talking to a lot of friends about the movie because the movie has a very, uh, n- very polarizing uh, status back home in Asia in general. So I was like. I get it because literally all the movies from back home, the representation is the people back home, which is more homogenous. 
but they don't get that the uh, the meaning behind the movie. You're talking about a big Hollywood studio backing a POC story with this level, with that much funding, which hasn't been done in the last 25 years. It's something more monumental for the diaspora back in the U.S. who are people who move there and are trying to make a name for themselves. And then when I came back, like literally, I think I got back on the day before the movie came out, but I watched it on the on a Saturday afternoon. And then uh, watching it as an Asian living in the U.S., it definitely hits this level of like weight saying like, okay, now I'm, Hollywood is finally, you know, giving us a chance to tell stories mm. from our cultural perspective in a way. In a weird way, and we shouldn't need this, but... I felt like I was validated by seeing folks who look like me on the screen. I felt like we are being seen, we're being heard, and we're not, you know, the sidekicks, or we're not side characters, or we're not there to support a different, larger A story. We're no longer a B or C story. We are the story. So I did feel like um, my heart needed that um, as an Asian American. And that was a good point, Santino, about like stepping in two different worlds and not fitting in completely in Asia or not fitting in completely in America. That's something that the film was able to fill that little hole that I didn't know I had. Mm. That's so sweet. I, it, just the way you guys are expressing this, um, you can just tell that it's, it's so deep on so many different levels. And in your experience of talking about it with your family who lives back in the Philippines, of course, it's going to be such a different, they're going to have such a different response to it. Everybody around the world is going to have a different response to these movies based on our own experiences. Talk a little bit about the improv shows that you guys host. Uh, well, and also you've got a sketch comedy troupe. Uh, this has been around since before. Obviously, the movie just came out. This has been around for a little while. Uh, tell us what you guys do there. Um, so I'm one of the co-founders for Y'all We Asian, which is the improv, the all Asian improv group. Uh, we've actually had Deborah and Christine as monologists before for our <laughs> show. Um, we had a thing called uh, Summer Vacation because we were trying to... Um, have a show that kind of told the experiences of, like of other Asians like spending their summers because it looked very different than how a lot of other kids spent their summers. So and, and so we kind of just like had people tell their stories that we thought were really interesting and cool in the community and then uh, did scenes off of that. But we started doing that. We were um, the person who started it with me. is Her name's Kim Tran. And we were kind of just like sitting together in acting class one day and we were like, man, we don't see anything. We didn't haven't seen anything for this, like uh, for Asian American Heritage Month. And then so we were like, we should just do something. And then so we planned a show at the uh, Fallout Theater. Um, and it was like we planned it in two weeks, basically, and sold out that theater in, in like two and a half days. Like it was kind of crazy. Like when was that? That was like, uh, May of last year. Okay. Yeah, May of last year. And it was just like, we just put up the Facebook event. We maybe invited like 30 people and then we took a break and then we came back and it was like, it was like 400 people just saw, who saw it and were just like, it just kind of went like, vi like not viral, but like it kind of went nuts in like its own little Austin Asian community. Like I kept asking people like, how did you hear about this? Like I saw my friends saying that they were interested and then I was interested and then, and then it's like, even for the show, we had people that were like, that showed up an hour before to line up because they were trying to get tickets, like waitlist tickets and everything. And it was like, I had all these people messaging 
us. And then it was actually um, the troop actually probably would not have started as a troop if it was not because of Christine, because Christine actually suggested that we should become an improv troop because we were just a variety show, actually. Because, because they could win awards or at least be nominated <laughs> for awards and then get grant money. Yeah. Well, I mean, and look at the response already. I, obviously, this is hugely popular. Have the subsequent shows also been? Full? Yeah, we, they sold out all the summer vacation yeah. shows. Yeah. And, and then, they were good. They're yeah. funny. Y'all go see <laughs> yeah. them. Y'all we Asian. <laughs> I mean, for Deborah's show, we we literally sold out basically the week before like we had one day I couldn't even message Deborah fast enough to tell ask her if she needed any comps because we had none left wow and then what about the sketch show <laughs> so hot pot started about a bit earlier but it wasn't fully formed necessarily so it happened around like December 2016 because we were noticing this groundswell of Asian American comedians and the groundswell was happening in LA with this show called uh, Asian AF started by Will Choi and then we were like I think this is a good time to like combine the Asians we know within the community. So the theater where I was doing improv, there was this guy named Jisoo Peck who'd basically been doing comedy since he was in high school. And uh, this other uh, person named uh, Virgil Shelby, who's now one of the owners of the theater, uh, he said like, you know what, we should find other Asians and write sketch. Let's, let's try to do a key and peel for Asians. <laughs> so we started that December. We started entering these like sketch competitions. And then when Yola hit us up for the Y'all We Asian Variety, she was like, do you think we could get Yola? She's probably too busy with stand-up. And could we probably get Kim Tran? She's probably busy with her other improv endeavors. But we emailed them and Joseph Tran, who's now in New York, uh, we emailed them. And then we are now Hot Pot Comedy. We've basically done almost nine festivals since then. And then we started this sketch show, which has sold out subsequently called This Asian American Life, where our where our main main character is Asian Ira Glass. So we have, <laughs> yep. If you go on Facebook, you will find uh, Jisoo Peck playing Asian Ira Glass. Yes. That's fantastic. So I presume, similar to the movies, the audience is, it's not all Asian people in the audience. No, it's, it's kind of surprising. Like, I, I feel like for the sketch shows, sometimes we have, like, it's weird. Like, our last sketch show, we had, like, maybe four to seven Asians and then everybody else was white and it was kind of it was kind of weird actually but then but i will say for a lot of the shows it's definitely been a mix whereas i definitely think when we first started it we were going to be having mostly asian audience members but it's been kind of exciting that like other people are also interested in what we do and it's not as polarizing as we thought and I mean, the, the term Asian is so broad. And we talked uh, before we got on mic here that uh, Christine is Vietnamese and Yola's Taiwanese and Tino is uh, Filipino and I'm half uh, Indian. And when I went, it was really interesting to see all of those broad, different Asians coming together, which, you know, we have a lot of commonalities, but we also have a lot of differences. But um, it seems like there was definitely a hunger for that representation you guys yeah definitely asian identity is quite a very interesting thing especially coming from me as i said like i am an asian not asian american but asian living in america because i still hold a foreign passport uh so because when you're in asia i grew up there like i spent a good 20 years of my life in asia and the asian is doesn't necessarily come out until you leave the continent mm. that the asian identity does not necessarily exist when you're in asia because when you're in asia you're either filipino Indian, Pakistani, Japanese, South Korean, North Korean, Taiwanese, Chinese. That's a whole different uh, 
uh, thing, but the Asian identity gets multiplied once you move out of the mother continent. And yeah. It, yeah, it becomes much more of a gelling, uh, a more of a catalyst for the people living in that you know part of the world. Yeah. And one of the things that you said, Christine, was that, you know, the, one of the great things about Crazy Rich Asians is just how it brings such a broad range of these crazy characters who are not. I mean, I feel like in Asia, Asian representation in American media is, um, you know, the nerdy kid, whatever, uh, you know, but like to just open up this whole broad spectrum of characters. So uh, so what's next? What do you guys see happening next? I think they're working on a sequel. Yeah, they're definitely right. working on a sequel. Yeah, but they, I think there's a, if I mean, if my feelers are correct, there's a mad dash for content now. 13 I mean, new Asian, yeah. Asian-centric uh, productions mm-hmm. have been greenlit uh, in the weeks since. Yeah. So that's why Crazy Rich Asians was so important. Also, why the film festival, Asian American Film Festival in Austin, were, we were backing it because we knew that this would open the door for so many other projects and like um, John Chu, the director of Crazy Rich Asians, said in so many articles that s- studios were holding on to at least six projects. They were not going to green light it until they saw how Crazy Rich Asians did on opening weekend. And I think locally we can also maybe harness some of that power, some of that energy to come back and support folks in our own backyard. Um, so talk about your event. You have an event that's um, centered around doing that, right? Yeah, so uh, what the hashtag, because, you know, you hashtag things now. So the hashtag for Crazy Rich Asians that opening weekend was hashtag gold open. So we can have a, a huge um, uh, message to Hollywood that green lighting this stuff is, is profitable and noble. So we wanted to bring that here to Austin to say, hey, backing Asian American artists in Austin can also be profitable noble and just great art mm-hmm. just really good stuff i mean you could see that with y'all we asian hot pot comedy i also have a, a little non-profit art, artistic company called color arc productions um, people are doing stuff here so i don't want everyone to focus on what's happening in la or new york but we have stories here in the south we have stories here in austin hello you know um, we say y'all, we can have an accent. We don't have to have an accent. We can eat pho in the afternoon and kolaches at night. You know, there are so many things that we could be crazy Southern Asians. We could be crazy poor Asians that go to UT. We could be crazy, really crazy Asians that are on medication. We could be crazy. So many other things, um, that, uh, it's just now beginning. So let's, it's great that we pushed uh, for this movie and now let's push for each other and it starts by supporting one another. Um, so on September 29th at five o'clock at the Vortex, uh, we're going to uh, on Maynard Boulevard. So y'all can get your drinks at the Butterfly Bar. You can get your dinner at the Patrice's, whatever. Just come down at five o'clock. It's free. And we're having all these Asian American artists and allies um, come down and talk about ways we can support each other. So all the the the, the cool, you know, um, rainbows and unicorns I just talked about, let's put that into a plan where we can implement, where we can execute. And I, I want to have maybe a calendar of events where we can plug in our events. We go to each other's things. Maybe we have our own hashtag. It doesn't have to be gold open. It could be something else. I want to hear what people's needs are and we could see how we could fulfill it. Let's make some um, winnable action items and let's go execute. Do you have a Facebook page or anything for people to get 
tuned into that? Yeah, just go to Color Arc Productions. Uh, Color Arc Productions, uh, Facebook, at Color Arc Productions, Twitter, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. So that's there. Um, all right, so now let's hear about the upcoming comedy shows you guys have. Yeah, so um, we actually, for Y'all We Asian, we are going to be um, co-hosting a an open mic at the, the Asian American Resource Center. Um, that's going to be starting in October. Uh, so right now, that's just, we're starting just with one show, I believe. Um, and that is hopefully to kind of hone some more Asian voices that kind of want more opportunities to like perform and maybe be in a uh, environment that's a little bit more comfortable for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I so we also have uh, This Asian American Life that is happening uh, on September 20th. We're putting together a new one-hour show that's also at the Fallout Theater at 8 p.m., um, and then Y'all We Asian is opening up for Midnight Society at Coaltown Theater every Saturday this month at 10 p.m. And the best pl- way to stay up on those would be through? Uh, we have Facebook pages for each. So Y'all We Asian and Hot Pot Comedy. Um, there's also a hashtag that Santino created called Asians Doing Comedy that you could usually find us uh, usually on. Um, but yeah, so we're all on Facebook and uh, Instagram too. So I'm also working on a new work um, that's going to have a work in progress uh, reading soon. So it's called Romeo and Katrina. It's a new musical that I'm writing with composer uh, Tyler Mabry. So Romeo and Katrina, a new American musical set in post Katrina, New Orleans. Romeo is blue collar Vietnamese lives on the West bank of New Orleans. Katrina is Creole bougie upper class lives on the East bank. Their romance uh, builds after uh, Katrina hits and as their romance um, uh, ascends, so too does the New Orleans Saints as they win their first NFL Super Bowl in history. So anyway, we're having that reading on September 29th at three o'clock at the Vortex. And then we're having our um, Asian American um, Artist Summit uh, at five o'clock at the Vortex. So you can find that out at Color Arc Productions, C-O-L-O-R-A-R-C Productions. Well, thank you so much, you guys, for coming in. And thank you for everything that you guys are doing to elevate Asian artists in Austin. We appreciate it. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. The I Love You So Much podcast is proudly sponsored by Hilton. Discover Austin and choose from one of our many brands, including Hilton. Embassy Suites by Hilton, Doubletree by Hilton, Hampton Inn & Suites, and Home to Suites by Hilton. See more, save more. Stay at Hilton. Unlock local experiences at travel.hilton.com. We are here with Statesman Culture Reporter Joe Gross. And Joe, you're here to talk to us about the Statesman Selects book pick for September with an Austin author. Yes? Yep. And what's his name? His name is Scott Vondoviak, and he wrote a book called Charles Gate Confidential, uh, which was published by Hard Case Crime, which is a really terrific crime novel imprint. Awesome. And this guy is from the East Coast, which is germane to the novel, but he is now an Austin writer and it takes place in a few different time zones. Yeah. Yeah. He um, he moved to Austin in 96. He's been here a while, but he graduated from Emerson College in Boston and his novel takes place during three different time periods uh, in Boston 
And it sort of revolves around the Charles Gate, which is a building that has gone through a couple of really interesting incarnations. Uh, it was a luxury hotel in the 1890s that sort of fell on hard times and then got revived and then fell on hard times again and became a dorm for like two different universities as now luxury condos. And what Scott did, which is very cool, is he divided the novel into three time periods, 1946, 1986, and 2014. And he sets a, a crime takes place in 1946. And then in the 1986 chapters, a young man who is at Emerson College in the Charles Gate dorm tries to sort of put together the history of the building. And then in 2014, uh, there is an effort to get together uh, students from that time period, from 1986, for a class reunion. And that ends up delving even deeper into the building's history and sort of what happened with this crime. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I like hard case crime stuff a lot. I think it's a terrific. Same. Yeah, it's yeah. a terrific. Uh, Especially during fall, too. You know, some like, yeah. gritty Boston stories just feel right. Yeah, it's a it's a terrific imprint. And um, they publish uh, stuff that's old, that like lost novels from well-known crime writers of previous decades and brand new stuff. And uh, Scott uh, Von Doviak's book is brand new, and it's his first novel. Uh, he wrote; he's written a couple of books. Um, he wrote about a, a book called Hick Flicks, uh, the rise of redneck cinema, and he wrote a book about great Stephen, title. Yeah, <laughs> he wrote a book about Stephen King films. Uh, but this is his first novel, and it turned out great, and I ended up sort of devouring it when I was on vacation, and I was really, really impressed. And he also writes um, TV recaps for the, for the Onion Navy Club? Yeah, he, um, he's he been a film critic for a long time for Fort, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. He was sort of their backup guy, uh, you know, when the, uh, when the film critic at Fort Worth didn't want to see... <laughs> You know, some kind of crappy-looking movie they would send. You're, you're, uh, seeing, you're seeing Ice Age Four. Yeah, exa Scott. yes, exactly. <laughs> they would send. They would send Scott. Uh, but these days, he is probably best known as a critic for his recaps on and his television criticism at the AV Club. Great. Well, Joe uh, got to interview Scott. He came into the studio and talked to him. So we will hear a couple of clips from that interview, right, Joe? Yeah, here, here are a couple of clips. And if I sound dead, I had a... It's because you are. Uh, yeah, I had a dead very... Inside. <laughs> this I is a, the ghost we're talking yeah, to so right was, now, I listeners. Was, I, both, I, both had a, uh, I both had a cold and am, and am somewhat dead inside. <laughs> so I do not... I, do, I sound like weirdly terrible on this thing, but uh, it was a great interview and well, Scott's a great guy. Well, enjoy, people. <laughs> So, um, how did you end up in Austin? Um, a, a circuitous route. I, after I graduated, I um, well, I hung around Boston for a little while. I went out to L.A., uh, you know, tried to break into the film business, did a number of weird film business jobs without ever, you know, really breaking through. And it's not, it's not fun to live in L.A. Uh, if, if things aren't going well no, for you. That's what I've heard. <laughs> And I uh, had a friend or two who had moved here, so I, I was started coming here just, you know, to visit, just to get away. And at a certain point when it came time that I just needed to flee L.A., uh, this was in, came here in uh, January of 
96. So I've been here uh, 22 plus years. Excellent. Yeah. So have you been a freelance writer the whole time? Uh, no, no. Um, probably st- I started that around uh, yeah, 1999, 2000 was when it really, I, you know, I had started doing some online stuff just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for myself and to build up, you know, some kind of portfolio. This sure. was, it was more of a, you know, the Wild West Internet at that point. Um, so I got some, you know, started doing movie reviews and uh, uh, got some clips together and just happened to see a posting by uh, Chris Kelly, who was the film critic at, in Fort Worth at the Star-Telegram at the time, was looking for uh, some backup because he didn't want to go see, like, Corky Romano and things like that. Sure. So so that's how I broke in there. And uh, so it's been close to 20 years I've been uh, doing, you know, freelance writing. How much uh, how much fiction have you written? Uh, well, I mean, this is my first published novel, but you know, obviously, there's been other attempts. Um, mm-hmm. And other short stories floating around or anything like that? Uh, not really short stories. Um, I mostly screenplays. I did a screenplay or co-wrote one for uh, an indie film that was done here uh, in the late '90s uh, called "What I Like About You," and it played South by. It played up in. Uh, uh, slam dance in mm. Park City, um, Im- impossible to find now, as far as I know. Um, but <laughs> but it's a credit; it's on IMDb. Sure. You can yeah. look it up. Um, <laughs> it's there yeah. and everything. Yeah. Um. So. Um. Yeah. No, this is really my first, you know, piece of fiction published. Mm. Talk to me about putting the novel together. Well, uh, then the book is set in three different time periods because. You know, I wanted to use this building, Charles Gate, and I wanted to kind of show the history of it. So I have, um, you know, one por- portion is takes place in the 1940s, and that's kind of when the mob has taken over the hotel, which may or may not have happened. There's, there's rumors about that, but who knows? Uh, then there's the 80s when I was there, and that's the largely, you know, autobiographical portion. And then, like, the present day, or it's actually 2014 at this point, but close enough. Mm-hmm. Um and so I needed something to tie them together. I needed some kind of, and I wanted it to be a crime story. Um, so I had to come up with some kind of big crime, and I couldn't do like Fenway Park getting robbed because they did that in the town. So that was out. You can't do that. One. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I had I was living in Boston when the uh, Gardner heist happened. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum mm-hmm. was robbed, and so I was that was like something I was vaguely familiar with, but I needed my crime to take place in the 40s. So sure. my initially, I was just going to kind of use that as a basis for an entirely fictionalized crime, and I was going to make up a museum and just in, invent the paintings in it. And then I realized, I, no, I don't need to do that. I'll just move the heist from 1990 back to 1946 because, you know, the museum already existed. Uh, it was the same collection because it was stipulated in uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner's will that, you know, nothing could be changed. So everything was the same. So I just moved it and used what I could from the real uh, crime. And then, you know, when I needed to do my own stuff, I just uh, embellished from there. Mm. Yeah. Uh, who are some of your um, crime novelist heroes? Well, um, I'd say first George V. Higgins, who wrote The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which is kind of the ultimate uh, Boston crime novel. It certainly is. And movie. Uh, yeah. I mean, both are amazing. Yeah. It's weird that like, the movie is as good as it is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Robert Mitchum, you should check it out. Um, and 
just the way, you know, the characters he has, obviously, that I were hugely influ- influential, and just the way kind of unfolding plot just through their dialogue. Like, if you read Friends of Eddie Coyle, it's like 90% dialogue. I mean, yeah, it's it amazing. Wouldn't have been hard to write the script from that <laughs> for the movie. No, not at all. Um, so I, I did that to a certain extent, not as much as him, but, you know, I just liked... It's just more fun to have the story emerge through the voices of these co- more colorful characters than it would be, you know, just me telling it. So, mm-hmm. um, so he's the big one. You know, of course, the other ones you would think of are like Dennis Lehane um, and even out, outside of the Boston realm, like uh, Elmore Leonard. You know, those are the probably the big ones. Yeah. I really liked sort of switching between first and third person. Um, I thought that worked like way better than it should have. Did you sort of want that those multiple perspectives yeah i wasn't sure at first if that was going to work but i thought since that section you know since i identified with that character the most i thought well let's try you know telling it from his point of view because he's really the one who's digging into the history of the of the hotel and finding the stuff out and you know uh, there's a way you could look at it like the whole thing is being told by him but it's been put together after the fact if you wanted to look at it that way but really i just thought you know it'd be a fun change of pace something to differentiate it you know the different time periods even though you know i just tried to do that just in terms of colloquialisms and things like that and um so and it was just just came naturally to write that character from the first person yeah it's kind of I just I've described it as kind of a Rubik's cube where each chapter you're turning it a little bit and you're getting a little bit more of the full picture and so things have to be set up in a certain way so it's there's a lot of going back and making sure that you know okay I can't reveal this yet in this timeline because it hasn't come out here in this right. one yet so there's a little tinkering of that kind. That Did you have on. like a little conspiracy yeah, wall? Yeah, I didn't. Your... I didn't have the true detective wall or a spreadsheet <laughs> or anything like that. It was a lot more uh, a lot more intuitive than that, but. It was fun, though, because if I'd, you know, once I'd finished writing a, uh, say, a 1946 chapter, I'd leave myself a little cliffhanger, and I didn't need to figure it out right away because, you know, now I'm going back to 86. So that could kind of marinate for as long as it took me to write the next couple of chapters. And then by the time I get back to, you know, writing about the 40s storyline again, maybe I've come up with something by then. So it worked out pretty well. Uh, So how'd you hook up with Hard Case? Uh, When I first finished it and wanted to send it around I actually had an agent from my nonfiction. He had, uh, my first book was, uh, Hick flicks, the rise and fall of redneck cinema. And he had, you know, handled that. So I sent it to him. He read it. He really liked it a lot. And he said, Oh, great. And he kind of gave up on it almost instantly. Like he sent it to like five editors and, and you know, they got some good feedback, but he just said, ah, I'm, I'm out of the fiction business, which I took kind of hard. I was like, really? Just, I did that to you? You did that. You personally, <laughs> it's your fault. So after that, I spent a little time trying to find another agent, but I, you know, I always had a hard case in my mind. I just, you know, uh, of course, I love the covers. They're, they do the lurid uh, pulp style covers. Yeah, from it's, the, an, it's an amazing imprint. Yeah. And so I always kind of, boy, that would really be my ideal if I could get, well, I'll just email the guy. So uh, Charles Ardai is the publisher editor. And I just emailed him and with my pitch, he said, yeah, send it to me. You know, I really didn't expect anything to come of it. And he would tell you nothing ever does if you do that. (laughs) But in this one particular case, he got back to me a few days later, just sent me this beautiful email that I will will never 
delete, but <laughs> uh, print just, out and place on yeah, wall. Yeah, but he just flipped for it, read it several times to make sure he wasn't crazy. Uh, you know, he had to go to like Titan Books's sort of hard cases and imprint under them, so he had sure. to go to the, the honchos to run it past them, and they said fine. And he just bought it just from me. So, what are you working on now? Well, uh, I've got a couple things in you know various uh, states of completion. Mm-hmm. You know, I what I my, my dream, I guess, would just would be to do like a, a series. I want to do one like set in Austin, basically, with a mm-hmm. uh, protagonist uh, who would you know you'd carry through like a series of five or six books or whatever, and see kind of a changing Austin through mm-hmm. that perspective. Uh, but I have I have a couple others that may come to fruition before that. Well, congratulations on the book, man. It's really great. Oh, thanks very much. Eric, welcome to the Web Report. What's up, Omar? What's up, Tali? Hi, Eric. So I've got a dispatch for y'all this week from the Beat, as Ooh, we like to call it. Really? Do you tell? Mm-hmm. So we're always checking up on Matthew McConaughey, seeing what he's up to. <laughs> to a creepy degree, I would to say. A, yeah, I mean, like, not quite too restraining order, but up to the line, I would say. Uh, so there I was, just minding my own business, and I found out about this video series called Celebrity Snackdown. Oh. It's from Delish, the food website, and they take recipes from celebrities that they have obtained through, I assume, legal means, and they make both of them and then see which one is better, right? So I originally came across it because it had Beyonce's guacamole recipe. Oh, I, I would try that. Well, she's from Texas. So, but you know who they put her up against? Who? Oh, God. Eva Longoria. Oh, you know what? In, yeah. in the category I'm going to go ahead yeah. and trust Eva. I mean, yeah. Yeah, you can see how that one went. <laughs> Girl. So it's like Corpus Christi versus Houston. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, spoiler, Beyonce's guacamole recipe is like the most basic guacamole recipe <laughs> you could think of. Uh, also, guacamole is not even that complicated. So you can't really have like yeah, that big like of a... two, maybe three ingredients. Yeah, as soon as you start throwing like peas into it. Then... Nope. So I'm going to guess that McConaughey was on this SmackDown thing? So McConaughey, yes. Thank you for bringing us back on track. So we, got, we went into <laughs> a Beyonce spiral. Uh, so Matthew McConaughey was on this with his margarita recipe against, get ready for this, Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> oh my goodness. Actually, that's a great bearing, that's... like both in terms of regionality and just like vibe genre. But it has to be the same thing. Like True. it can't be like Mexican martini versus <laughs> well, margarita. Okay, so <laughs> it has to be the same food, right? So they're like comparing like apples to apples, guacamoles to That's guacamoles. Close. But the thing is, I think the celebrities decide themselves to call it a margarita. Yeah. That's for us to judge. So that's so that leads us to our next point. Uh, Matthew McConaughey's margarita recipe is really weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and well, it, isn't Jimmy Buffett's like I have a mix. <laughs> Just use my mix. <laughs> well, it did use Jimmy Buffett's tequila brand. Okay. Jimmy Buffett's margarita is literally branded a margarita. It's you could not have a more basic margarita. <laughs> it is just you look at you think margarita, and that's what it is. It's just you know you got your tequila, you got your lime juice, you got your you know yeah ice whatever. But McConaughey not having it. He's, not having he's, it. Not no. So this is called the Just Keep Living Margarita, and I I just sort of want to build a little suspense, right? Because I want to like lead into what the ingredients to this so-called margarita are. <laughs> it's called the Just Keep Living Margarita, and he first made it on Guy Fieri's uh, Food Network oh, show. Oh, that guy. 
another dubious. We cannot character. escape Guy Fieri on this show. No, we can't. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. We're going to start a Fieri beat as well. <laughs> Please tell me there's no donkey so, sauce in this margarita. There is no donkey sauce, no, but uh, it does have some kick, I think. <laughs> so, uh, without further ado, I would like to read you the ingredients to Matthew McConaughey's Just Keep Living Margarita. They are as follows ice, tequila, lime juice. So good. So far, so good. We got a margarita. I'm in. It goes on, reader. Uh, Grand Marnier or a, another orange liqueur. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'll take it. A citrus soda. Oh, no. Orangina is recommended. Now, at this point, it's <laughs> oh, no. probably okay. not really a margarita, <laughs> okay. I would say. All right. We veered off into some this sorority get, territory. This is where you get carded. Is this a kid mm-hmm. just, that just wants soda? <laughs> yeah. Well, but we're still in the citrus family. So it's like, oh, okay, okay. Tonic water. Whatever. Here we go. Here's the... Drum roll, please. Don't actually give me a drum roll. But two tablespoons of cranberry juice. No! What? Yeah. Is this like a Matthew McConaughey UTI recipe? Like, this is your... <laughs> That's your what cure? I was saying. Yeah, it serves a medicinal it started purpose for off, sure. It started off as a margarita, and it ended as a cosmopolitan. Exactly. Uh, reviews on the Celebrity Snackdown uh, video include weird, really tart... <laughs> one uh, taste I tester, bet. yeah, exactly. One taste, t- one taste tester went so far as to say, uh, "Shame on you." <laughs> <laughs> not all right, all right, all right. Not all right, not all right, not all right. So, is it a margarita or not? That's up for debate. I would drink it. Yeah, I would drink it too. I mean, I bet it's better for you than the Jimmy Buffett margarita, but I don't know. Like, why are you drinking a margarita? Probably not for longevity. <laughs> I think it's sort of a suicide mission to go up in a margarita contest against Jimmy Buffett, mm-hmm. of all people. Like, I bet the publicist for <laughs> yeah. McConaughey was like, oh, no, no. What, <laughs> this is becoming a nightmare. I think so. It's, and it's working because okay. we are giving them press. Well, Congratulations, Matthew McConaughey. This terrible mar- margarita. <laughs> I, I just couldn't resist. I think my bottom line with it is, is it a margarita? Maybe in some universe. Maybe for Matthew McConaughey. Is it weird, though? Yes, and what's more Austin than a weird margarita from Matthew McConaughey? It's, okay. a, it's a tragic margarita. It's a All tragarita. Right. All oh, right. oh, oh, okay. <laughs> so you know what I would love is for listeners to make this and then like live tweet at us with their own experiences. With, with a picture of them grimacing <laughs> and trying to gulp it down. Yes. Maybe I'll be one of those people that does it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hijack your social media presence real quick and say, please tweet <laughs> at loveaustin360 a picture of you <laughs> drinking your Attempting just keep margarita. Try, yeah. Trying, <laughs> And, and whatever happens to your body afterward. Yeah. It's going to be like the new um, spoonful of cinnamon challenge <laughs> yeah. where like people start crying <laughs> at the first sip. <laughs> okay. Eric, okay. thank you for sharing this with us. Maybe. <laughs> like, I don't know if I feel good about it. Cheers, Omar. Thank Cheers. Now we've come to the moment in our show where we have a toast. This is where we go around the table sharing some recommendations of things we feel you, our listeners, should check out. And we've got Eric Webb with us. So Eric, tell us what you got. Well, guys, so I just finished volunteering at Agliff, which is uh, the All Genders Lifestyles and Identity Film Festival. They just did a little rebrand. Oh, they renamed it. They renamed it. Um, It's the uh, LGBT Film Festival in Austin. I volunteered last year, had a great time. Volunteered again this year, had a great time. Where did they have it? Like, where did they do the screenings? It's at Alamo Draft House, South Lamar. So it's real fun when you volunteer because you just feel like you work there for a weekend. And it's pretty fun. Also, you subsist entirely on a diet of Alamo Draft House food. 
which isn't the worst thing. <laughs> Maybe worst thing on your credit card statement. Tray, tray food in the dark. I love <laughs> it. Tray food in the dark. Can't beat it. So uh, it's a really cool event and it's a really cool film festival. This is the thirty. This was the 31st annual. And you see so many cool queer stories and uh, about, you know, uh, lesbian life, gay life, transgender life, um, bisexual life. And then just it's it's super intersectional. Lots of stories, um, you know, of people of color and of uh, uh, of women. It's it's really really. I already great love weekend. this. Yeah, and so my favorite movie. I saw a lot of things that I loved, but my favorite movie I saw was called Wild Nights with Emily, and it is an Emily Dickinson biopic starring Molly Shannon. Dude, yeah, is it like um, period biopic? It is period. Okay. So um, I'll just I don't want to spoil anything, but it's got Molly Shannon, so you know it's funny. Uh, it's a little, it's a little zany, but it definitely keeps that sort of period appropriate restraint to it right. at times. Uh, but again, I don't want to spoil anything. So basically kind of the gist of it is everyone thinks of Emily Dickinson as being this spinster, right? And she just locked like, in her room. Locked in her room. And so this movie, and I, I do want to dive in and actually read some of the research, but apparently scholars say that's not true at all. And she actually had a like very loving, passionate, long-term relationship with the woman who would become her sister-in-law actually. Wow. And uh, there's a... A romantic relationship? Mm-hmm, a romantic relationship, yeah. And they so cool. found that a lot of her letters, Emily Dickinson's letters that appear to just be to no one or to be to, you know, cries in the dark, actually, the family had erased the name of her sister-in-law wow. after her death. And so it was a really, it was hilarious. And then at the Some end... Some revisionist history from mm-hmm, the Dickinsons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so just like completely erasing that queer narrative... Uh, from history and then it's really funny but what I loved so much about it was at the end of the movie it really starts to get into that kind of revisionism and it takes not really a left turn but it starts to really put into stark relief like exactly what a tragedy it was that that wow. story and that love story has been lost to wow time. so we highly recommend it uh whenever it comes back around uh, that Oh, I am really into this. I was not an Americanist, but the turn of the century is always fascinating to me. So I would love to check that out. Uh, okay, well, <laughs> I'm going next. Yeah, you go, Tully. <laughs> so, okay, so I read an article last week in Jacobin Magazine called Why the Rich Love Burning Man. And disclaimer, I've never been to Burning Man before, but always been intrigued every time I see those pictures on Instagram I always get like pretty intense FOMO but I've got friends who have gone to Burning Man before and I'm somewhat familiar with the principles right like no currency you can't buy anything with actual money except coffee lots of dust yeah lots of dust it's in Black Rock City everyone contributes to building the city and then taking it down for I think it's a week and it's a big spectacle of really awesome out there art However, I always, for a long time, I've had this question about, like, what is up with all the money in Burning Man? Like, what is up with all the, like, rich tech dudes that go out to Burning Man? And this article not only explained that for me, but it kind of put into perspective some of the more social justice repercussions of the connection of Burning Man with libertarian rich tech dudes and how in some way it becomes hyper-capitalist. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's a really fascinating read. If you, like me, are at the same time intrigued by Burning Man and just have noticed how many people like um, Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos like go and then create these million-dollar structures that get into, 
get torn down in a week and you feel funny about that, then I really recommend this article. It uh, connected that's for me. Where can you find that? Hashtag beautiful mind. Um, Jacobin Magazine. Okay. Why Why the Rich Love Burning Man. Awesome. Yeah. Look that up. Omar. Uh, so my mine is uh, not on brand for me because <laughs> I'm not into golf. Oh, at yeah. All. I saw this on the sheet. Yeah. I'm not into golf at all, but uh, I, I visited uh, Top Golf. Uh, okay. Did you go to the one on North Burnett? Road? I went to the one in San Antonio, which oh. I'll get to in a second. Oh. But actually, the first one I went to was actually in another city in in Arizona, and wow. I had, and I had a really fun time. I was there with some friends, and just it, it was just I had no concept of what Top Golf even is, and I'll, <laughs> I'll explain it to you. Uh, it is basically like um, like going to a driving range, yeah. But everything is super high tech, and oh. and you're in these little like cubbies uh, with seating, and there's drinks and food. They bring you stuff. And basically, you're just like doing like targets. Like there's targets in the ground that you're just hit, trying to hit the golf oh, ball. So it's okay. almost like 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 mini golf on speed. Like yeah. it's, it's really not golf. It's like, it's like karaoke for golf. Kind of. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And if you go in the evening, if you go at night, like the targets light up. So you're just trying to hit colors. Oh, that's so fun. It really is. And there's screens that show you like where your ball went. And did you hit the target in the middle or on the side? And like, it's really, really fun. And and so I had so much fun doing that in in Arizona that I this last weekend I took my parents and my brother to to it and his girlfriend to the one in San Antonio. Now this was a very different experience because they were having all these technical issues like we can't <laughs> register anyone. It's going to be like a three hour wait and, and nothing's no. working and every, every ball is a practice ball. Nobody's keeping score, so it was just like a big nightmare technically. But it actually worked out because we could just hit the ball over and over. And nobody said anything, and they didn't even charge us for the for the game. So oh, that's cool. It's kind of like bowling in that each person you know goes one by one, and you take turns, and we can just sit and drink and do whatever while while the other person's swinging. Uh, but I'm not a golf person at all, and I totally loved it. It was a really really good time. You've had so many athletic toasts lately, that and the um obstacle course. So. I've actually been getting up out of a chair and and moving <laughs> my body around, and I find it's 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 actually pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you, okay, Tom. great. Thank you, Omar. <laughs> Great toast, everybody. That's our show. She's Addie. He's Omar. I'm Tolly. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. If you liked what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. It helps other people discover the show. I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from Features Editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672. This podcast is brought to you by Hilton Austin. We couldn't do the show without you, dear listeners, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your stadium-approved see-through plastic bags. Until next week, we'll see you tailgating outside DK Royal with a koozie in hand. Hey.